Wonderful. Good morning, everyone. We are live. It is so good to see so many familiar faces coming back time and again. This is Becoming Israel, the Return of Jacob. We are continuing to work through Genesis with Rabbi Silver. Um, if you're joining us here on Zoom, I'm happy to see that so many of you have already turned your camera on. If I send you an invitation to be a panelist, again, you don't have to teach the class, but it will enable you to be in the room, so to speak. You will be able to share your video if you want. You don't have to, but we really do appreciate being able to look around and see our classmates. Um, and you will have an easier time unmuting yourself when we have time for questions and comments. If you are not intending to share your audio, please do stay muted. Life happens. I've heard some interesting things on Zoom this past week that maybe people didn't want to share. So just for the sake of reducing background noise. Um, if you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can post questions and comments right underneath the video. If you're on Zoom, again, you can use the chat here if you're more comfortable with that. Uh, a lot of folks tend to like to use it for note-taking purposes. Uh, if you're worried you might forget a question by the time we get around to question and answer discussion. And if you're joining us on Grisha Live, hello, good morning, we're glad that you're here with us. Uh, without one more thing, one more thing. The text for this class is the Tanakh. So if you have a copy that you like to use, by all means, feel free. Otherwise, I will put a link in the chat if you want to open it up in Safari on your own, make the text enormous. I know that's what I typically prefer to do. Um, otherwise, I will be doing my best to keep up sharing on screen for your convenience. Now, without further ado, Rabbi Silver, please. Thank you, Noah. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, just wanted to pick up, uh, just to complete some of the thoughts from last week, then to move to a related thought. Hopefully finish that today, and next week we'll start with chapter 33. That's the plan, and anyway. So last week, we're in the midst of the struggle between Yaakov and this mysterious Ish, who seems not to be merely an Ish, since Yaakov says after the struggle, that I have seen God face to face. So the being is not simply a human, but rather some divine messenger as well, or a human being acting as God's messenger, however one wishes to uh, describe it. In any event, I just wanted to come back to a couple of other points about the story, then we'll move on with other elements. So the story, uh, begins, this piece of it begins by telling us that Yaakov uh, is left alone. And of course, this recalls for us the pasuk in the beginning of the Torah, where God says, in particular striking because Yaakov had said to God, three times the word tov, is found in Yaakov's appeal to God to help him. And God is strangely silent at that point. And now we come across, and of course, we're all reminded of the verse, which prefigures in that chapter, the creation of this Ezer Kinegdo, the helpmate, the Isha, as, uh, as Adam names the Isha, as he names himself the Ish. So what's interesting is that in that story, in the beginning of the Torah, where God is searching for an Ezekinegd helpmate, the Torah says that God brought all different animals to Adam, 
to see what Adam would call them. And whatever Adam called them, that is their name. And the next verse says that he gave them all names, but he could not find a, uh, a uh, helpmate for himself. Which point God uh, puts Adam to sleep and uh, fashions from his side, fashions a person. Uh, coming back to the first, the initial uh, bringing of all the animals to Adam who names them, that's actually interesting in terms of our book in general for more than one reason. But one of the reasons is that it says first he names them, and then after he names them, it says he could not find a, an Ezer Kinegdo, suggesting that the naming of them, the describing them, and that is in fact their name, that the name is not merely something which is, you know, something that we call somebody to identify someone, but rather the name suggests that it reflects the essence of the thing named, which of course in the Torah is very true. The change of names, the new name is very significant. In our story, of course, Yaakov gets a, another name, not only Yaakov, but Israel. So that's interesting in its own right. And that's right towards the beginning of this book, we have that. First he names them, and then he realizes, or we are told, So the Ezer Kinegdo is fashioned from one of his sides. Sometimes they translate rib. But it's Selah in biblical Hebrew, we have it in the Mishkan as a side. So from the side of Adam, uh, God is fashioning another being who is this Ezer Kinegdo. Et semiyat samayu basami b'sari, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Lazoti karei isha. This one should be called an isha, for she is taken from an ish. So we are virtually identical. What's interesting is that that word, which is a rare word in the Torah, it appears in the context of the Mishkan. But over here in chapter 32, what's interesting is that we are told that after Yaakov wrestles with this mysterious being, and he achieves, and he, he receives a new name. And in light of what we just saw, one might say he becomes another person. And this other person, is fashioned from, 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 from a person. In other words, Yaakov, one might say, begets Israel. And what's interesting is that the Torah says afterwards, he was limping afterwards. And that I think is very striking because it sounds like it's recalling that story of the Lotov. And in this particular case, by Vater Yaakov Rivado, in the first instance, what is, what is to be born will be born from the two of them, from the Ish Isha. But in this particular case, he, he is fashioned, he is fashioned from himself, one might say. And leaving there's several interesting points to be made about being fashioned from himself. But I want to make a different point which is related to this uh, question of what is actually the symbolism? Because the, in the struggle, uh, we are told earlier, a few verses earlier in chapter 32, that earlier, that verse, right there. 
says, So he wrenched his, he literally his hip at the socket, Yerech is a thigh. The socket of his hip was strained as he wrestled with him. And at the end of the chapter, it talks about the fact that Israel does not eat the gid the sinew of the thigh, until this very day. Twice in verse number 33, the last verse of the chapter, once again, the Yerach, Yerach is mentioned. So what is this business of And there's something else curious I want to mention to come back to a different point. Um, and that is that when Yaakov brings across the family, he brought across his two wives, he brought across his two shfachot, he brought across his 11 children, he brought across all of his possessions. And it's interesting that it emphasizes he brought across his 11 children. Leaving out the question that in actually in Bayeza he has 12 children because he has Dina, leave that out. Leave that question out, he has 11 sons. But why does the Torah mention specifically he brought across the 11 sons? So I had the following thought uh, about, uh, about this. And that is, before we answer or try to resolve some of the problems here, I wanted to point out that this Ish says to Yaakov, what is your name? My name is Yaakov. No longer share your name be Yaakov, but rather Yisrael, because you have Sarito and Elohim, Okay. That's our chapter, chapter 32. If we jump ahead for a moment to chapter 35, hope we get there someday, chapter 35. But for now, after Yaakov returns, Yaakov is, uh, I'm not giving anything away, Yaakov succeeds in disentangling himself from Esau in a peaceable way. Then we have the story of Dina, of course. And in chapter 35, in the middle of chapter 35, verse number nine, it says the following. Yaakov returns to Beit El in the beginning of chapter 35. And then you have verse number nine, Devorah is, dies and is buried. We'll deal with that in the future, I hope. And then we have verse number nine. God appeared again to Yaakov upon his return from Padan Aram from Lavan, and God blessed him. God blessed him. Now let's see what the blessing is. God said to Yaakov, your name is Yaakov. But no longer shall your name be Yaakov. Rather, it shall be Yisrael. And God called him Yisrael. So here we have a precise parallel to our story. There was the Ish, said your name shall, and here it says, Vayikrach, it adds, not only is it God, but not only is not no longer Jacob, but Israel, but then God calls him Yisrael, Vayikrach Shemo Yisrael. And God continues to speak in the next pasuk. Vayomelo Elohim, Ani El Shaddai, pray or so 
So God continues to speak. God introduces God as El Shaddai and says to Yaakov, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall emerge from you. And kings, and kings shall emerge, shall issue from you, your wines they translate here. And furthermore, and I'll give the land that I gave to Avram and Yitzchak, I will give to you and your descendants after you, to them I will give the land. So we have over here an embellishment of what we see in our story of Yaakov wrestling with the Ish. Here that's, it's God who gives Yaakov the name and in fact calls him Yisrael. And then we have blessings. And there are three blessings. First of all, the blessing of fertility, the blessing of kingship, and the blessing of the land. So of course, the question obviously is what is what, if any, is the relationship between these two stories? Chapter 35 seems to be on one hand the repetition of, but an enlargement and embellishment of what we have in chapter 32. So let me make one small suggestion and we'll come back to this later. I have a couple of new thoughts about this. I've taught this story a hundred times. There's always something new. What's interesting is, what is this business of kafi recho? What is the yerech over here? And clearly, it seems to me that the yerech, literally the thigh, is not actually a thigh. But what's talking, what it's referring to is the ability of Yaakov to uh, to, uh, to uh, procreate. And in particular striking, because the children, the word zera, which means both seed, and also means children, descendants. But what's interesting is, we have the expression in the Torah, and in the Torah, only about one person. When the Torah talks about Yaakov going down to Mitzrayim, um, let me find it, and it says that twice. It says it in the beginning of the book of Shemot, beginning of Exodus, and it also says it in chapter 46, when Yaakov brings the family down to Mitzrayim. Um, in, uh, in the book of, in both places, for example, chapter 46, I'll read it to so it describes Jacob's descendants as that emerged from his Yerach. And the same thing is true in the beginning of the book of Exodus. Jacob and only Jacob's descendants are described as those that come out of Yerecho. So Yerach doesn't means a thigh, but it alludes to more than a thigh. It's the ability to have children. And therefore, what we can say over here about that this, this mysterious Ish, who is Nogea Bakafirecho, what he's doing actually is in theory preventing Jacob from having more children. And what's interesting, thought I had the other day, is that we know that in the Torah, for whatever reason, the number 12 is significant in terms of the family. We know that Jacob eventually will have 12 sons. We know that, for example, in the description of 
um, of, of Yishmael, the blessing of Yishmael. He will have 12, 12 princes will emerge from him. We know that, for example, right after the story of the binding of Isaac in chapter 22, it says this is the family of Nachar, and it describes the family of Nachar. It's really talking about Rivka there, but it describes Nachar's family. And he has a wife, Noka, who has eight, eight children. And, and, his, and his concubine, Ru'umah, has four for a total of 12. Eight plus four, same as Jacob, eight plus four. So the point over here is, that's, I think, why the Chumash emphasizes he brought across his 11 children. 11 is not 12. Something is missing. And in point of fact, and in the Torah, by the way, just parenthetically, when the Torah lists the number of tribes, it always comes out to 12, somehow. Sometimes it's 12 because it doesn't count Levi, it counts Menashe and Ephraim as two. Sometimes it counts Joseph as one and it counts Levi. Sometimes it counts Levi and Joseph's two children, but it doesn't count Shimon. That's in Zotah Bracha. It's always 12. So over here, the point of it is, the significance of this wrestling, Kafi Recho, means no more children. And in chapter 35, that's exactly the point. The first thing God says to Jacob is, your name is not Jacob, but Israel. And pray or be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will, uh, will, will, will descend from you. So this is part of what's going on over here. In, in effect, what it comes down to is he's trying to prevent Jacob from realizing his full potential, which is to be the father of the full family, which in turn is the progenitors of the full nation, the 12 and then the 70. And Jacob eventually goes down to Mitzrayim, Yotzei Recho, with, 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 with 70. You have the 12 and you have the 70. So the point is that, the point is that, um, yes, someone says Rachel's already pregnant. It's very hard to know whether she's actually pregnant or not. It is possible. That, that's a possibility. It's very hard to know. We'll come back to those psukim. Those psukim are very rich and, and a lot more to say about them. But my point is that to understand the significance over here, he's trying to prevent Yaakov from becoming what he could become. And that actually in the Chumash is what uh, Amalek does. Amalek in the Chumash is the group that tries to stop you from getting where you're supposed to go. When you encounter Amalek the first time in the book of Shemot, by Yavo Amalek, we're on the way to Mount Sinai. We're on the way to build the Mishkan. And before you get there, by Yavo Amalek, they come from someplace or other. You don't simply encounter them in the desert. They're not in the desert, but they come to stop you, to prevent you. So that, I want to add that point over here about, and what, what Yaakov is doing to tie the two points together, then I'll take comments or questions, He's actually giving birth to himself over here because Israel actually can be seen as being born from Jacob. And I wanted to make one more point, point that I made in the past. I'll repeat it now because I find it very interesting. And that is that the, we remember the covenant which lies behind this entire story, obviously. The covenant of when God says to Abraham that your descendants will be strangers and oppressed, enslaved, 
And then God says in chapter 15, but the fourth generation shall return to the land. So if we think about that in terms of the book of, of Reshit, we know that, and we study this, Yaakov in the house of Laban, Yaakov describes his own experience as Gerut Abdut and Inuit. He says it explicitly in chapter 31, he says Abdut and Inuit. And in chapter 32, our, our chapter, in Laban Garti. So Yaakov is the, Yaakov represents the suffering Jew, the Gerut, the Abdut and the Inuit. And he is in fact the third generation because Abraham is one, God speaks to Abraham, Yitzhak is two, and Yaakov is three. Then the question is, where's is the fourth generation? The fourth generation shall return to the land. And here there are two possibilities. What I used to say in the old days, and I think it's still right, is that the fourth generation is are Jacob's children, B'nai Yisrael, and the story that represents the return to the land is the story of Shechem that we'll get to soon, chapter 34. The conquest of Shechem is the symbolic conquest of the land. And they are in fact the fourth generation. I think that's correct. But what is interesting is that the verb Lashul, to return, we don't find in conjunction with Yaakov's children. But the verb Lashul, we find over and over again in conjunction with Yaakov himself. Hashivoticha, God said in chapter 28. And Jacob took a vow, Vishafti Bishaloma Betavi. And in chapter 31, And God says, The God who told me, Shuv. So where do we see, where do we see Yaakov, Yaakov returning? Right? Yaakov here, Yaakov's prayer in chapter 32, He told me to come back. You told me to return. So the point is, but the fourth generation returns, not the third generation. So I suggest that in addition to reading it, the first option, that the fourth generation of Jacob's children, one can also see Jacob as the fourth generation himself, not Jacob, but rather, but rather uh, Israel. That Israel actually is, is born from Jacob. That's the whole birthing imagery over here, that Solea. Israel is born from Jacob. So Jacob is both actually. Yaakov is both the third generation, but Israel is the fourth generation. And as the fourth generation, he is to return to the land. He returns from the house of Lavan. He returns to, uh, yes, he's, after his death, he returns to the land, right? He's brought back to the land after his death. He's the last one out, as it were. So that's an interesting, another interesting facet of the story over here in terms of this idea of Israel being born from Yaakov. He is Yaakov. He's always Yaakov. In fact, when God speaks to Yaakov, God never says Israel. God always says Yaakov. He's never actually named Yaakov Israel in that sense. But when the Torah describes him, and especially key moments, he, the Torah calls him Israel. It's like a title. He's a Tsar. He's a prince. But his actual name, he remains Jacob as well. But let me stop here and take comments and questions. And then we'll move to what will be the main topic this morning. I don't know if we'll finish it or not, but it's very interesting. Yes. Any comments or questions? Is that Debbie? Oh, yeah. Debbie. I, yeah. Yeah. I thought that maybe 
Um, just like the Malach comes to Moshe and stops him or tries to hinder him on his way back. Um, that here this Malach is trying to hinder, or this Ish is trying to hinder Yaakov on his way back. Right there actually it says, it says Hashem. Right. Okay, I, that's a story that clearly has parallels to our story over here. It's been raised a couple of times already. I didn't want to get into that. Obviously, if God wanted to kill Moshe, God would kill Moshe. So that's a different, something. there is something else going on in that story, which is similar in the sense, before Moshe can return, something has to happen. Happen, right. So we can talk about that sometime in the future. Something has to happen. He can't just return the way he was. Something has to change. To that degree, the two stories are parallel. <laughs> As I said many times, if he remains Jacob, he never crosses over. Jacob can't cross over. Jacob is unworthy of crossing over. But it's Jacob's ability to transform himself, and God gives him the opportunity to do that. That allows Jacob to become a different additional person and another person. And that other person, Israel, does cross over. So yes, but the specifics of the story of Moshe with, the, with God's encountering him on the way, uh, that's, we'll leave that for another time. But the parallel right. is, point is well taken. Yes, Tova, you had something to add here? Um, yeah, I wanted to ask. I mean, I can see the thigh as the symbol of fertility, but isn't it also the symbol of taking an oath? Right, so that is that is correct. You have it actually twice. You have it in chapter 24 when Avram uh, yeah, has the agent put his hand on his thigh and, you know, and you have it also in terms of, of Yaakov. Maybe they're related, actually. A thigh, it's a thigh, but the point is the symbolism of it is procreation. And in both of those stories, by the way, both Jacob, both Yaakov later, he's about to die and he's concerned that Yosef, he's concerned about the future. That's it. Both of them are concerned about, they're both old and concerned about the future. How, how, how do we proceed in the future? So therefore, putting the hand on the thigh is probably related to that. What's going to be in the future? What's with the next generation? What's down the road? And in each case, and this is the nature of the human condition, you have to rely on other people. Because we don't, none of us live forever. So we all rely on others to carry forth those things that we hold dear, we believe in. And that's, as the book of Kohelet says, that's the problem. Because you can't always know for sure in fact, we're very unsure about the future. So we do the best we can, but who knows? That's what Kohelet bemoans in his, one of his main complaints about this world is that you work very hard for something and then at the end of the day, you're in, you're in someone else's hands and who knows what they're gonna do, you know? So, but those, it's a good point. Those two oaths are probably related to, to this point about concern about the future and and they're parallel oaths. Maybe we'll get there someday in, in terms of comparing those two stories. There are many interesting parallels between the two stories. Uh, thank you for that. Is there someone else who yes. wants to comment? What, what do you make of specifically the damaging of the thigh, which you've been speaking about right now, after it is after after Yaakov has shown that he can successfully best God? Well, I think it's part of the struggle. I don't think it's after. I think it's during. I mean, the way the Torah writes it, in, in, you can't write two things simultaneously. <laughs> you can show two pictures at the same time. But I think the point is that in this struggle, 
he, he, he's able to, I mean, it's part and parcel of the covenant. The covenant is your covenantal by dint of the fact that you're willing to make sacrifices. You're willing to, which Yaakov, Yaakov at the end of the day is the hero of the book. If you have to pick one person, it's Israel, because when he goes down to Mitzrayim, he goes down knowing exactly what's going to be there because he had it once. He, he accepts it. And he understands that part of the part of the covenant is the willingness to accept the consequences, whatever they may be. But that he, in his thinking, it's worth it nonetheless because it sets up this covenant for my descendants, for the world or whatever. Not that he himself is going, he returns to the land after his death. But fundamentally, three generations suffer and the fourth generation possesses the land and they're not the same people. My point about Yaakov is that in some sense, at least symbolically, he, Yaakov is, is able to do both. Maybe that's what it means. I think this idea is in the Svata Met, although he doesn't formulate it this way, but the idea that Jacob doesn't die, Yaakov Avinu Lomate, I mean, he says it slightly differently, but it's related to this point, that actually he's able to do both. He's to, to, to bridge this, this, this chasm between those that suffer and those that possess, that in Yaakov, you see both elements. So, but I don't see it as after. I, I see it as during. I think it's part and parcel of the struggle. He, he is wounded, but not, he's wounded, but not defeated. He, he, he's victorious, which doesn't mean he escapes unscathed. On the contrary, he, he still limps afterwards. But that's, that itself is, is the nature of this covenant. There's all kinds of suffering that goes along with it. And those that are willing to accept that are covenantal. Anybody else want to comment here? And then we'll, we'll, then we'll start part two. Wendy Baker. Yeah. Yes, Wendy? Uh, uh, Wendy, yeah. Uh, two things together. The thigh damage and the fact that all of Yako's sons inherit. Abraham and Isaac had only half their children. Right. Uh, but that the, the, the thigh may signify no more children. And this is the limit of how far that goes. Well, we'll have to see later on because that's one of the questions. Because he does have, first of all, Rachel is going to have another a child. Yeah, As was pointed out earlier, Rachel will give birth to Binyamin. Well, that's child number 12. But there are further twists and turns in the story. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see about this, about having more children. He's also going to lose a child. Joseph is lost. Joseph has to be brought back into the fold. So we'll see how that works, how, how Joseph gets reincorporated. But my, my only point was to, was to point out that the Torah specifies 11 children over here. Yeah. I think the reasons for specifying 11 is, 11 is not good enough in this context. You need 12. That, for whatever reason, the number 12 is the number. Um, Okay, let's continue. Is there anybody at last comment? Sam, Sam made a comment, asked a question. Um, Sam, you want to ask? Um, he says that um, uh, couldn't Shimon and Levi be considered the fourth generation? Because uh, if, if Shechem is the entry point to the land, which you've talked about, um, and they conquer Shechem, then aren't they? Another, wouldn't that be another iteration that they would be the fourth generation entering the land? Point. Yes, that's the first thing I said. Not, not just Shimon and Levi. Shimon and Levi lead the charge, but all the, all the sons fight in Shechem. All, all of Yaakov's children fight against Shechem. Shimon and Levi take the spoils, they, they rescue Dina. They, they get the right 
after they get the bad rap with Jacob? Right. They're, they're certainly the ringleaders. There's no question about that. But Bnei Yaakov, Bala, and the sons of Jacob, all of them, all the sons, not just Shimon and Levi. And they are, in fact, the fourth generation. That's the first possibility. And I, and I like that possibility. I think that's true. I'm saying, in addition, there's an additional way to read it. And not only Bnei Yisrael, literally Jacob's sons are the fourth generation, that Shem is the himself. possession, but that Jacob himself. Mm-hmm. It does strike me that the verb Lashul specifically applies to Yaakov in the book of Breshi. But what if he doesn't know, right. recognize that he's returning? For instance, I mean, he's so wroth with Shimon and Levi uh, for, for doing that. And it's, it seems to me, just from reading the text, that he has no clue that this is the, the, the fulfillment of a, of a covenantal blessing. And we'll so, see that. I'm, I'm not sure that's true. There's another uh, way to read that. But okay. we'll get there. There's another way okay, to good. read it, which I prefer. But there's another way. We'll, we'll see. Okay. Good question. So, my filler, uh, what yes. is the significance of the Torah pointing out right after these events uh, that the sun rose uh, the next day? I, I, the significance that I mentioned last week is that, well, let me put it this way. The day, the biblical day starts in the morning. Secret, little secret. The biblical day starts in the morning, as the Rashbam says. So the sun rising means it's a new day. And uh, it's true that later on, the, 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 the holy days actually start at night. Um, uh, but the point of the Chumash is that this event, that's why I'll repeat what I said last week, the event of Yaakov wrestling with this Ish, says the Torah, is an event that is enshrined in our collective memory forever, which is the point of And not only is it in our collective memory, it's also in Yaakov's memory, because Yaakov still lives. In other words, it's not something that happens once and you can forget about it. The point is that even, even in the following day, even beyond that moment, it's something that, that is, that, that's, that's part of Yaakov. Yaakov is the limping one even afterwards. It's not like you make some resolu- we make resolutions at night or whatever, wake up next morning, you know, and it's all forgotten. And that's not true in this case, not for Yaakov himself, because even after the sun rises, he's limping. And it's also not the case in terms of B'nai Yisrael, who remember this moment through the, through the observance of not eating the Gid HaNasheh. And in fact, last week I gave a, an example of that, which I like, and I'll repeat it. And then we'll continue with, with part two. And if we'll finish part two, but we'll start with part two. And that is that at the Seder, um, at the Seder, we are um, engaged, according to the Haggadah, in a mitzvah the Haggadah calls mitzvah lenu l'saper b'tziat mitzrayim. There's a mitzvah l'saper. L'saper is to tell the story. There's a mitzvah at the Seder to tell the story of the Exodus. That's what the Haggadah teaches us. And Haggadah is the vehicle for fulfilling that mitzvah. Then the Haggadah tells us a story about five teachers who were together in the home of Rabbi Akiva and B'nai Brak, and they were They were busy telling the story the entire night. Their pupils came and said, our teachers, 
it's time to say the morning Shema. So, among other things, in the Haggadah that I wrote many years ago, in Hebrew and English, and I asked the question, what is the story about? Why is the story, what do we make of the fact they said, Rabotenu, it's time to recite the morning Shema. They could have said, Rabotenu, the sun has risen. What's Igiyazman Kriyashmashoshachri? So one of the points I made is that there's a mitzvah in the night at the Seder to tell the story, which is, a, um, and they were up all night and they were so engrossed in it that they didn't even know it was the morning, okay? And there's a mitzvah to tell the story, and there's a mitzvah to, of gratitude, and the mitzvah of halal, and there's a mitzvah to eat the Pesach and the matzah and the maror, the visual aids and the whole thing. Then there's another mitzvah that God mentions, which is every single day of the year, twice. That the Haggadah has this argument between Ben Zomra, Rabbi Leza Ben Azariah, and Yichachamim. Do you have to remember the Exodus twice a day or once a day? And uh, Ben Zomra says twice a day, right? At night. So there's a mitzvah every single night of the year and every morning to remember the Exodus. How do we remember the Exodus every morning? Answer. We say the Shema. Ani Hashem Elokeichem Asherotei Echem Yeretz Mitzrayim. Says it in the Shema, the third paragraph of the Shema, the blessing that follows. So what these pupils were saying, Rabotenu, the great mitzvah of staying up all night and studying and singing, that mitzvah is over. And the proof that it's over is now there's a new mitzvah. Now in the morning there's a different mitzvah. Not to study, not to sing, but to remember. And the, my point is that those two mitzvot are actually connected. Because one of the functions of ritual is to keep enshrined, to keep in our hearts and minds those great religious moments, which are rare. I'll speak for myself, they're very rare. And they also come in times at often unexpected moments. So we want to keep those moments real for us and alive. And this story is one such moment, Jacob wrestling with this ish alone at night and coming to terms with whom, who, who, who we should be and, and what, is that, what, what his possibilities are and how to move forward. That moment is kept alive by Yaakov because even after the sun rises, he's still limping. So he hasn't forgotten it. And it's kept alive, says the Torah, by all of Israel, B'nai Israel. It's the first time the Torah really uses B'nai Israel in the typical sense of the people of Israel. We don't want to lose those moments either. And we have the, the observance of the Gid HaNasheh is a reminder about this particular moment. And more broadly speaking, one can make the argument, I think, that one of, not the only, but one of the functions of ritual is to keep alive those uh, those, those sacred moments. That's what I spoke about last, 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 I mentioned that last week, I mentioned it again, I think it's a very important point. Okay, now we have Higiyazman, part two of the Shir. That's Rabotainu, Higiyazman, part two of the Shir. So what is part two of the Shir? So part two of the Shir is this. I have some new thoughts. Um, I've spoken about this in the past, but I have some new, new, new ideas. The story over here is about Jacob's ability or inability to cross over and somebody staying there to block him from crossing over. This mysterious ish tries to stop him, tries to destroy him, obviously, 
but he can't destroy him. And at the end of the day, he's forced to bless him. Yaakov said to him, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. What is your name? Yaakov, no one would Yaakov, but rather Israel. So this story over here about someone who comes to block us, to prevent us, to drive us away, but is forced to bless, obviously, is repeated in the Chumash on the level of the, pe- of the people. And of course, that's the story in the book of Bamidbar, we're all familiar with, the story of Bilam, where Israel has Israel is marching on towards the land. And the king of Moab is concerned about this. And he invites, king of Moab is named Balak. He sees what Israel has done to the MRE. The defeat of the MRE is chapter 21. That is the war against Sichon, the war against Og. Sichon is called Sichon Melch or So he's concerned that Israel has begun to conquer the land. And remember that the land uh, that of Sichon that is conquered by Israel in chapter 21 was formerly land that belonged to, uh, to uh, Moab. Sichon had fought with, the, with Moab, that captured land from Moab. And when Israel defeats Sichon, who's Canaanite, a Canaanite king on the other side of the Jordan, toward, the Jews don't cross the Jordan in the Torah, but they do take Canaanite land from Sichon. That's what the Torah says. From, from, from Balak's perspective, it's very interesting. From Balak's perspective, they're on my land. <laughs> yes, they took it from the Amori, but the Amori took it from me. Raises some very interesting questions, which I'm not going to get into now. Whose land is it? But from the Torah standpoint, it's actually, was the Amori's land through conquest? And now Israel, in a defensive war, defeats the Amori, and they possess land, and Moab, namely Balak, is concerned that Israel may decide, either decide to take more land, or there'll be such a force, as some understand it, that they will cause havoc for the, for, for the Moabites, right? They will lick up clean all that is about us, as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So in order to combat this, he doesn't send his army out, but rather he hires somebody to curse, to curse Israel. Someone that he believes has the power to bless and curse. And this person is named Bilam. Right? And he says, What's interesting, I'm not getting into this now. We're not studying the book of Amidbar. What's interesting is that the whole description over here, that these, a lot of the language of Balak recalls for us the story of the, uh, of the, uh, of the, of the Exodus, of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Uh, the beginning says, Vayokots, Vayokots. And in, in Israel and Egypt, Vayokutsu. Pharaoh was concerned about Israel. They'd become too powerful. Rav Menu. Right? We have to figure a way to outsmart them, to outwit them. And over here as well, in short, for our purposes, Balak wants to hire Bilam to curse, is willing to pay him to do it, and to drive them away. That's his thinking. Now, and he says, because I know he says, 
whomever you curse is cursed. Whomever you bless is blessed. You have the power to bless and curse. That's what Balch assumes that Bilam has. Well-known prophet, diviner, or whatever you want to call him, he has this amazing power. That's what Balch thinks. So he wants to hire Bilam to, uh, to curse, to block them from coming in, right? Of course, we know the story that Balak finally does go, and we're gonna skip over that whole part of his initial going and then the talking animal and, and God saying to Bilam, go ahead, but you're gonna say what I tell you to say. And Balak does meet Bilam. This is found, let's find, where does he meet Bilam finally? Let's find the place. He meets Bilam. Um, we meet him in, the, in chapter 22, let's say in verse number 36, chapter 22, verse 36, yeah, right, by Ishma Balaki Babilam, comes out to greet him, I sent for you, why didn't you come? Says, listen, but Bilam says, you think I can speak freely? I can always say what God puts in my mouth, fine. And now we have the stories of the, of the, the blessings, actually, it's gonna be the blessings of Bilam. Okay, so let me begin this. I'll stop and take some comments and questions and then we'll see how far we can get uh, this morning. And if we don't finish this morning, we'll hopefully finish next, next Sunday. So, so Bilam in chap chapter 23, there actually are four blessings, but we're only gonna deal with the first three. The fourth is a freebie that he throws in at the end after he is fired. But the first three blessings, interesting. So first he instructs him to build altars. Build me seven altars, fine. Bring sacrifices, you wait here. Let's see what God says. So now let's pick up the story as we move down further. He goes off, Shefi. fine. And now it says, God put words in the mouth of Bilam. And let's, let's begin with verse number six, right, seven. Verse number, now we have the first blessing of Bilam. I'll use this translation. He took up his theme. It says, Balk has brought me from Aram, from the Harare Kedem, from the hills of the east. Come, curse Jacob. Come, again, Zoamah is a synonym, cursed. They say, till Israel's doom. Probably also means to curse. Zam is anger, but of course Hebrew poetry, as we know, has works with parallelism. Works with parallelism. So the first thing we notice over here is that he says, "Come and curse Yaakov, orally Yaakov, Yisrael." So we have the Yaakov Yisrael right in the first verse. I was hired to curse Jacob, to curse Israel. But I can't do this, he says. Interesting is something else over here in this first verse. He says, Balak has sent for me, from the hills of the east. We remember that when Yaakov left home and ran away from home to the house of Lavan, it's the first verse of chapter 29. He goes to the land of the east, Eretz Kedem. Here, Bilam is coming, Meharare Kedem. 
you hired me to curse. He says, what can I do? How can I curse the, the one whom God has not cursed, right? And he continues in the next, in the next verse. Kimeros turim erenu, migvaot ashurenu. I see him, means Israel, from the mountaintops, from the, from the heights. Henam rivodad yishkon uvagoyim goyit chashav. I see them from the heights. Miros turim erenu, migvaot ashurenu. And then he says, Henam, they are certainly a people, rivodad yishkon uvagoyim goyit chashav. And here there's something interesting about this description of Israel over here. They are a people, Rivadad Yishkon. There's the word Badad. Badad means to be alone. It's one meaning of Badad. In Israel now with the, with the virus, sometimes you have to go into a quarantine. What is quarantine called in Israel? Bidud, right? Going to Bidud. What's interesting, the Torah seems to discriminate between two words. One is the word Levad. That's to be alone. But Badad is different. Badad means alone. But Badad also means something else. To be secure. It means not having to rely on anybody else. Having, your, having the ability to, to, to be alone, but to be secure nonetheless. So he's, Bilam's description of Israel, right? If we assume it's playing off the story of Yaakov leaving the house of Lavan, leaving Eretz Kedem. And he, And over here, Bilam's take on it is, Henom Rivadod Yishkon, Uvagorim Now let me just pause for a moment and just to make the point about the parallel between the two stories. In other words, when you're studying the Chumash and you're studying the book of Bamidbar, the question of, you must ask yourself is, the Torah spends chapter 22, 23, 24 on the story of Bilam. It's one of the longer narratives of the, of the Torah. What is this story? Why is it such an important story? And it is a very important story. There's other evidence for it as well. It's a very important story. What is its importance? Why and why here? Why chapters 22, 23, 24? And the answer I think is obvious, which is that Israel has begun to capture, to conquer the land. Israel defeats Sichon at the end of chapter 21. And here the Chumash raises a question. The Chumash has a question, which we also ask, but the Chumash asks it first, which is the generation that left Egypt died in the desert. They're not going to go further. And they died probably in chapter 20. It's where the death of Miriam is recorded. That's where the death of uh, Aaron is recorded. Moshe is told he will not possess the land. It's all in chapter 20. Chapter 21 sounds like a new generation. So generation number one dies in the desert. And generation number two now is beginning to possess the land. Ask the Chumash a very simple question. What is the difference between generation one and generation two? Is there a difference? Why is one group of people any better than the other? What makes them worthy? What makes it possible for them to possess a land, whereas their parents, those that left Mitzrayim, those people 
whose exodus we celebrate at the core ritual of our, of our tradition, which is the Seder. But they couldn't possess the land. By virtue of what is this generation any better than the first? And the fact of the matter is, that's exactly what Bilam is saying. But in Bilam, and we'll see this, the constant reference to Yaakov and Yisrael. It is true that in biblical poetry, we have the parallelisms and Yaakov and Yisrael are a very good pair. The fact that it appears over and over and over again in all of the prophecies of Bilam, because it could, it, could it could be written differently, obviously. And therefore, what Bilam seems to be saying is that this nation has the ability to transform themselves. Sometimes, it, sometimes one person can do that, that's rare. Sometimes it happens over two generations. As the promise to Avram says, three generations of suffering, and the fourth generation shall return to the land, for the sin of the Amori is not yet complete. And of course, Sichon is Melech Amori. So what Bilam is saying over here is, though they have this ability. And now he continues with the next verse. This is a very interesting verse for us who have gathered together on a Sunday morning to study chapter 32 of Breshit. This is an interesting verse. So let's see, what does this mean, first of all? Who can count the dust of Jacob? Now the question is, what does rova mean over here? The JPS translation has dust cloud, and that follows Milgram, and I don't think that's right, actually. It's only a possibility. He has some, some cognate tarba and some other. Et rova, he thinks, is one word. I think it's very unlikely. There are, uh, there are different interpretations of what is rova. Some say it means a fourth. Israel was divided into four camps in the desert, three, three tribes and three tribes and three. Who can even count a, a fourth of them? Possible, unlikely. I personally believe that what Rashi says is right. That Rova Yisrael, you have this Rova Venerva, it's a sexual act. And that Rova is parallel to Afar. Who can count the dust of Jacob? The dust means the children. It stands in for children. Stands in for, sometimes words stand in for something else. Afar is, that was what God said to Yaakov in chapter 28. It means the seed. Who can count, and it, 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 it connects to what we had spoken of earlier about the Yerich. Who can count the number? Jacob's ability to multiply. Who can, who can, who can fathom that? That's the, that's the first thing. So, so it's a reference, it's an oblique reference to the Kaf Yerecho. And then he says something else. Tomot nafshi mot yisharim. Would that I die the death of Yisharim. And here it's very interesting with the death of, the, of Yisharim. Of course, but we all know that the name Israel, Yisrael, right? Jacob and Israel, right? Who can count Mispat Rova Yisrael? And then Bilam plays on the word Yisrael. 
Tamot nafshi mot yisharim. Would that I die the death of Yisharim. We know that in the book of Dvarim, another name for Yisrael is Yeshurun. And that's the story in which Yaakov becomes, is Israel is Yaakov becomes Yashar. The crooked shall become straight. The circuitous shall become straight. Tamot nafshi mot Yisharim and I may even suggest something else that I believe you have in some of the Kabbalistic writings. I, I never didn't see it myself. I was told this by uh, actually by a Kabbalist many years ago. Interesting conversation with him. That one way to understand the Yaakov and Israel story is to see it, I don't read it this way, but to see it in terms of a new Israel is actually born. There was Jacob is Jacob's confronted by this ish, by Yehoveki Shimo. He's in the Afar, Avak and Afar. Afar refers in Genesis to, to death. And in a certain sense, he, he's, he's reborn. He, he rises out of the ashes. That, the, that Israel is born out of Jacob, is born out of the Avak, is born out of the Afar. But in any event, what you have over here, it seems to me, is a very direct reference to our story of chapter 32 of the wrestling of the struggle between Yaakov and this mysterious Ish. And in that story, of course, the Ish ultimately is forced to bless. And the story over here, Bilam is forced to acknowledge Kibaruchu, that in fact they are blessed because whatever they may have done in the past, and they only could take the first steps but they're able to move forward. It's a people that can always move forward because they can always have the ability within themselves to become something new. So the story that's being referenced over here is the precise parallel story of the one who comes to curse but ends up blessing, and, or the one who comes to destroy and ends up blessing. Story of Yaakov on the level of the person Jacob, who's Levado, and the people who are Levadot. And Vadot is more than just Levad. And that's the first blessing of, of, of Bilam. Of course, Balak's unhappy. I hired you to, to, to curse them, he says. Balak says, what can I do? Let's move now. Time allows to go to the second, the second blessing. Fine. So Balak says, listen, let's, let me take you to a different place. Maybe that was a bad location. Maybe a different, a different angle on things. So he takes him to a different place. State Sophim. Fine. And let's move down first, get to the second. Once again, Bilam says, wait here, bring your sacrifices, wait here. And then in, in verse number 18, now he goes back to Balak, he says, listen, he says, Balak attend, you son of Tifar, listen. And now we have blessing number two. This point, this, this, back up. Look. Back up, back up. That's it, right there. There's plenty more to say about this. And in my new book on Shmuel, I talk about this blessing at some length. This is God is not one who will deceive or disappoint. Is it capricious? Okay. God will not change. God is not a, a model who simply changes who changes his mind. God doesn't do that. Would God speak and not act? Would God promise and not fulfill? 
My message was to bless. When God blesses, I, I can't change it. I can't reverse it. And now he explains why. Why is that initial? I, I told you in blessing number one, and you want me, you think you're going to take me to a different place and get a different result. That's not happening for the following reason. So the first thing he says is, I don't like the translation here. They translate, no harm is in sight for Jacob. No. I would say God sees no oven in Jacob. Oven is sinfulness. God sees no sinfulness in Jacob. God sees no woe. Amal probably also is something negative. God sees no weariness and no woe in view for Israel. Hashem mo, God is with him, Utruat Melech Bo, and the Hidetrantit, the acclaim of the king is in him, is in their midst. So let's just reflect a moment on what this could mean. Oh, he beat Oven if we think about the story of Jacob's return, right? Jacob's return from the house of Laban, from the land of Kedem. When Jacob returns from the land of Kedem, so his wife, and by extension Yaakov, because that's part of his family, has come back to the Holy Land carrying the uh, trophim. She brings the trophim with her. And the trophim, we have suggested in the past that she brings the trophim because she thinks they may aid in having another child that she desires. But in point of fact, she does have another child. We'll get to that story in chapter 35, but she dies in childbirth. And she named her child Ben-Oni, son of my Oni, which I took to mean son of my sinfulness. It's a confession. And in fact, we know very well that in the Tanakh, the, the terms oven utrafim appears several times. And in particular, it appears in the book of Shmuel in discussing King Saul. Your sin, says Shmuel to Shaul, and not destroying Amalek, equals kesem and also oven. Oven. And later on, Shaul consults the, 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 the medium, the Balat Ov, his daughter has Trafim. So there's something about Shaul, a descendant of Rachel, and, and, the, and, and the Trafim. And this is the point. So Bilam says, When I look at these people today, says Bilam, there's no oven. There's no Trafim. Yes, they left Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim has all kinds of things. Just as Yaakov left the house of Ravan, and he had oven when he first leaves. He didn't take them, but he's the head of the family. But now when I see them, it's different. And in point of fact, what's interesting is, we didn't get there yet. In chapter 35, the first thing Yaakov says to the family, we're going to Bethel, give me, all the, give me all of the idolatry, which he buries. So the ability to rid ourselves of those negative pieces, of oven, of amal, however we describe it, it's negative. No. God, can, God is with them because they've divested themselves of the oven and the amal. Hashem, Elohavimo, 
Utruat Melech Bo. I'll come back to the expression Truat Melech Bo. Let's, let's work with the, this translation here for the moment. The king's acclaim is in them, in their midst. There's a very interesting Rashi over here. I also discuss this in my book on Shmuel, but I'll leave this for now. And now he could, El Motsiyami Mitzrayim. Now, again, Bilam talks about the Exodus. Ketoafot Re'em Lo. They are, they are either God or they are like the horns of the wild ox. And he continues, Ki lo nachash biyakov lo kesem biyisrael. Ka'et yeramer liyakov liyisrael ma'pal el. There is no nachash and no kesem. Nachash and kesem. I remember I cited the verse in the book of Shmuel, which is, Chatat kesem meri v'yoven utrafim haftzar. Shmuel says to Shaul, you're not fulfilling God's word is kesem and his oven. He picked out two of the four terms. Here we have oven and amal, nachash and kesem. But over here, what's interesting is kesem is one thing, but nachash speaks to us very strongly because we know, right, that lavan is a menachesh. He says it. Please don't leave me, says to Yaakov, nichashti. I have divined, right? And God has blessed me. God has blessed me because of you. I divined it. So the house of Lavan is a house which has Oven, and the house of Lavan is a house which has Nachash. And what Yaakov was able to do is to, in his journey over time, he succeeds in divesting himself, in separating himself from the experience in the house of Lavan which we all know to be the experience of Israel in Egypt. And here they come together. El Motsiyami Mitzrayim, in Bilam's very prophecy, he's uniting the experience in the land of Egypt on one hand and the situation of Yaakov on the other. And notice that in the second blessing, right? Ohibit Oven be Yaakov, in verse number 21, we have Yaakov and Yisrael. And in verse number 23, we have Yaakov and Yisrael two more times. We had it in the first blessing. We have it three times over here. And there's something else interesting over here. There's no augury in Jacob. He's like, how they translate? No dividing in Israel. Why not? Because Jacob is told at once, yes, Israel, what God has planned. And the point over here, you can read this, I think, even in terms of the struggle of Yaakov with the Ish. Because what Yaakov is saying to the Ish is, I want a blessing directly. Up to this point in my life, I always got someone else's blessing. I always took what was intended for or was in the possession of somebody else. Now I want to be yashar, I want it straight. I want you to bless me directly, not indirectly, which is exactly what this verse says about Jacob. Jacob doesn't need the nachash, doesn't end the kesem. Jacob speaks to God directly. To Jacob and Israel, notice the emphasis. Jacob, who is Israel, my Paul L. Let's continue a little more. Henam Khavi Yokum Khari Nasal, Yeshkava Yokal Teref, the Dam Khalim Yeshteh, a people that rises like a lioness, will not rest to a feast on prey and drunk the blood of the slain. That verse is not going to make Balak very happy because he's hired him to drive these people away. And after describing the wonderful attributes of Jacob, who is Israel, um, 
how they rid themselves of all the negatives, how they have direct access to God. And then they're also powerful. They leap up like a lion and they drink the blood of the slain. Of course, Balak at this point says, listen, do me a favor. If you're not gonna, if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna bless them, if you're not gonna curse them, at least don't bless them. There's no of humor in the story. So these are the first two blessings. Bilam says, what can I tell you? I do, I, I, what God puts in my mouth is what I say. Whatever God says to say, I say. So these are the first two blessings. And now we come to the third blessing, which I have something to say about, this third blessing, one that's familiar to everybody. Let's just start with the third blessing. I'll stop, I'll take questions. And next week we'll start with the third blessing, which of course is Matovu. Matovu Olecha Yaakov Mishkelotecha. And that is something to reflect upon. But let's just start with verse, with, with verse, with, with verse uh, number one in chapter 24. Maybe I'll just to read one verse. Bilam saw that it pleased Hashem to bless Israel. And this time he didn't search for omens. Rather, he turned his face towards the desert. He saw Israel dwelling in camp tribe by tribe. And the spirit of God came upon him. So maybe we'll stop at this point. And, I'll, uh, and next week we'll focus on, we still have five minutes. We'll focus next week on the third blessing of Bilam and the difference between blessing three and blessing one and two and how by argument, it's actually predicated on the, on the story of Yaakov to, to, to a great degree predicated on the story of Yaakov. Let me make one last point over here about the verse we just read, tell a little joke. And then I'll take a couple of minutes for comments and questions. And next week we'll continue with the, the third blessing, Matovu. And then we'll go back to our chapter 33, uh, story of Yaakov confronting Asa. What's interesting is it says that Bilam saw that it pleased God to bless. This time he's not trying to find omens. It sounds almost like he's content to bless. That's what it sounds like. He's not searching for omens anymore. He sees that God wants to bless. And it reminds me of a joke that's found in, in one of Freud's books, jokes, jokes and, the, and, and, and the unconscious. And Freud has many jokes, they're all Jewish jokes, every one of them. So they're either about poor beggars or they're about, uh, or, or they're about, uh, about, about matchmakers. So one of the jokes is, so the matchmaker goes to the groom and says, listen, it's a wonderful, wonderful young woman for you. And I'm gonna, and I want you to meet her tonight. You, you, I want you to go to the house, you meet the family, and we'll make the shit up. So he walks, takes the guy to the house, beautiful house. And he walks in and walks into the main room and there's a break front that's filled with silver and gold and all kinds of beautiful things. And he turns to the groom and he says, look at the stuff they have, look at the wealth of these people. So the groom says, it is beautiful, how do I know it actually belongs to them? Maybe for the occasion they borrowed it from their, from, from their neighbors. So the, the, the matchmaker says, are you kidding? Who would give these people anything? And then Freud explains the joke, which is the matchmaker wants to tell the truth. People want to tell the truth, but his business is to lie or to misrepresent. But the moment he sees actually that it's not going to work, the groom already has questions then he's happy to heap on the abuse. And it struck me 
That's exactly the way the Torah presents Bilam in these chapters. He's a guy whose job it is, that's his business. He's well paid. His business is to, to bless and curse. He understands that it's not going to work. He understands God doesn't want it to happen. And at this point, he doesn't even make an attempt. He wants to bless, actually. He wants to tell the truth. He doesn't want to curse. Okay, but next week we will pick up with uh, the third blessing, Matovu Olecha Yaakov, and its deep connections to our story. Should be interesting. So I'll stop there. Are there any comments or questions? Noah, are you there? I am here. Uh, if anyone has a question or comment, feel free to unmute or raise your hand or pop it in the chat. Rabbi, uh, it's Sandra. Question. Yeah. Could, uh, especially with Bilam's use of the word nachash, uh, we would use it instead of a verb as a noun because we reference in Bereshit like we have been. I mean, could the ish be uh, nachash-like? Well, the ish is certainly nachash-like. That we right. Spoke about. So because you had said it was Amalek-like, but I'm, I'm thinking if we're, if we're going, harking back to Breshit and we have the Nachash and we have uh, uh, the naming and, and these other uh, hallmarks, um, and he's trying to do what, what you told us, taught us that the Nachash is trying to do, which is foil God and keep God from achieving right. his aim. That seems to be Israel, could, I mean, is this blasphemous to say that Israel is a stand-in for God in chapter 32? I'm not, I wouldn't say a standing for God, but I do think that the initially the issue the issue attacks you at the Nachash attacks at the weakest point. Mm -hmm. Jacob is alone, so he's alone. He's all by himself. He's a vado. He fights by Yehovah, is related to the Afar. The Nachash's curse is Afar tochal You live in the in the dust. You live in death, actually. Death in life is the Nachash, mm -hmm. and Jacob himself, his name is Yaakov. Is the heel? The snake attacks you with the heel. And my point is that the, the ish who comes is a mirror. When the, if Jacob remains Jacob, he's the one who takes advantage of other people's weakness. So this ish takes advantage of his weakness. Mm -hmm. And then Jacob it becomes transformed to Israel and suddenly the ish is the opposite. The ish is the one who reflects who Jacob is to, today, who he's become through his own ability to change. And then he blesses. So there's no question that the ish, at least in the first instantiation, you could call him Amalek, we could call him the Nachash, same thing, I think. And then what happens through Yaakov's ability, he's able to become a different person. And then this Ish, who's simply a reflection of Jacob, is then going to bless him. So yeah, I mean, the, the term Nachash, I mean, Nachesh and Nachash, I presume are, are, are in fact related words. Mm -hmm. Viner, who's called the Nachesh and Nachash, however they're related, they're certainly related, so for sure. And of course, the point over here is that, you know, the Torah is raising the question in terms of Bilam, you know, I mean, it's a question of what, if, if Israel remains the same as they were, they're not, they can't enter. And the point of Bilam's blessing is they're not the same. Just as Yaakov became Israel, Israel can become a different Israel. That's the point of the story. And we'll see next week with the third blessing, which is very interesting, how it really, I think, plays off in a very deep way the story of Jacob and Israel, but we'll have to leave that for next week. But for sure, the issue is both, I think, initially snake-like, taking advantage of one's weaknesses, because that's what Yaakov did. And then when Yaakov becomes, you know, fights and, and demands direct blessing and is wounded in the struggle, then the ish is reflecting a different Jacob. He's Israel. So we Elohim, 
be a manashim batucha. Okay, uh, thank you. Anybody else want to ask comment? And we'll stop here. Yeah, so you, you've it, you've not said it explicitly, but it seems like you're certainly saying that the roots of the nachash are in fact in God. That's right. Well, I haven't said right. I haven't said that explicitly at all, but. Right. I mean, it's God who sends the Nachash, that's for sure. And it's God who uh, sends the Nachash in the story of Nachash and Nechoshet also. God sends them. And here it's the, the Ish, and the, in the Ish is the Nachash. And the Ish is divine, is the face of God. Right. The Ish is, is, the ish is whether it's, right. The Ish is, you know, you've taken me to a place that is a much bigger conversation. But my point is that, yes, God is sending the Ish, that's for sure. God creates a kind of arena for Yaakov to, to become an opportunity for Yaakov to transform himself. That's what God does. And, and Yaakov understands this. But thank you for giving me an opportunity to be in a place where I can, where I can grow and I can question and I can become a better person. That is what God has done. I mean, that is... I would call that education. <laughs> what education is supposed to be. Not that it always is that way, but education is to create a setting where people can actually grow. People can think, can grow, can question, confront real problems. And uh, hopefully something good comes out of that. So, right. My point was that the issue on top of that is this, this kind of mirror. It's how some see the Raman Dov Tzadik and they're mirrors. And if you're, if you're, if you're ugly, they're ugly. If you're beautiful, they're beautiful. I mean, physically. I mean, if a beautiful soul, they appear beautiful to you. They just reflect who you are. And that way they're able to, you know, we see that we, we see ourselves in them. So I think that's part of what's going on. Well, next week, we will pick up with the third story of third blessing. Take us back to the Yaakovis again, the wrestling, and then we'll continue with chapter 33. Okay, so I'll turn it over to you, Noah. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Rabbi Silver, as always, for a wonderful class. And to all of you joining us here on Zoom, on Facebook Live, on Drisha Live, for being part of our learning community. Your active participation is always so appreciated. I would like to make people aware of the fact that we do have a new class starting this week on the uh, halakha of employer-employee relationships. It's going to be on Wednesday, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. I'm really excited about it. So I have put the link in the chat uh, if you want to check it out and join us. Um, otherwise, you're always able to catch up on recordings. And I want to remind people that we do have pre-registration open for our Beit Midrash for mental health professionals and clergy, as well as for our two different summer Kolel programs and applications for our girls' summer programs, high school and middle school are open until March 15th. So tell the girls in your life uh, about this wonderful opportunity to learn some Torah this summer. And we look forward to seeing you again soon uh, at the very latest next week here. Please be well. <laughs>